This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Matt Larkin with Ryan Kennedy and Ken Campbell. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. We're live from a hotel room in St. Louis, and I'm telling you guys, this is the most intimate podcast we've ever done. We're bedside. Yeah. I'm in a bed right now. I'm literally <laughs> sitting on a bed, and so is Ryan Kennedy. Yeah. And Ken Campbell's sitting really comfortably in a chair in this hotel room, and Steven's in, a, you know, a... A work chair of sorts, but either way, <laughs> this is cozy, and I feel good. How are you guys uh, doing? All right. I feel great. I just like 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 the late great Pat Quinn used to say. I just got out of the old fart sack. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, uh, as you guys can imagine, the reason why we are in St. Louis is we're here for the All Star Game, and uh, we're going to do a lot of All Star coverage while we're here. But before we get to that, there's still a lot of hockey to talk about coming into this All Star break, uh, and we're going to start with something not coming from the NHL, it's actually in the AHL. Uh, oddly enough, this happened on Martin Luther King Day of all days, but Brandon Manning of the Bakersfield Condors uh, suspended five games for a racial slur against uh, Boko Umama, who is African-Canadian, uh, and the suspension is five games. Uh, I look at that suspension, and I'm pretty shocked at how short it is, but I want to hear what you guys have to say. Before I get to that, I'm going to read you what Manning said afterward, he said, last night I made comments to an opposing player that were stupid and offensive. After the game, I spoke with the opposing player in person, which I'm very grateful for. He allowed me to apologize, and I took full responsibility for what I said. To say I've learned from the situation is an understatement, and I promise to be better. That's all, that's all well and good, but that's pretty much, you know, uh, apology 101, what you have to say. Uh, I don't think five games is nearly enough, but uh, let's hear what you guys have to say about it. Well, you'd expect him to, to do what he did. Like, it was stupid, it was offensive, and you would expect him to go and apologize, right? Um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure he's, I, I, I don't know Brandon Manning, but I'm going to take him at his word and, and assume that he has learned from this and he won't do it again. But, um, you know, it's like a lot of other suspensions, right? You're not going to curb the behavior unless you really, really show that you mean business. And five games is substantial, uh, but it's not. It's probably not enough. I, I would have gone at least double that, maybe more. Um, but I mean, you have to. I guess you have to. The league, the AHL, has to decide whether or not it wants to tolerate this stuff. You know, and 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 if if you really really want to make a statement, you, you suspend the guy for you know ten, maybe twenty games. Yeah, I would have gone at least ten games, and with an incident like this. You almost have to treat it like any other suspension in the sense of if you hurt a player on a bad hit and you say, oh, well, you know, that's not the kind of player I am. You know, I, I don't try to go out and hurt guys. It's like, well, you still did. Yep. And the sort of correlation for me is like, it's pretty easy not to be racist. Mm -hmm. In 2020, especially. You know, like... People know what's right and wrong, and you can say it's like, oh, in the heat of the moment, but like, even when I get mad, I don't get racist. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's like, and again, and I don't know Brandon Manning either. Maybe this was something where he just lost his cool. Maybe it was something where he thought he could get under Imama's skin uh, because, you know, Imama is a physical player, and, uh, you know, he can drop the gloves 
if necessary. So maybe he thought, oh, maybe if I can get this guy off his game, that will be an advantage to us. But there are many other way, different ways to do that uh, without bringing race into it. And it's a low blow. And yeah, I, I agree with you. Again, it, it, it's nice that he apologized and, and, and went to a mama, but you still did it. And I, for me, that's got to be at least 10 games because now if it happens again to somebody, it doesn't, I mean, maybe, maybe they escalated at that point, but it, it seems like the precedent isn't very high. Yeah. I mean, and, and how, how would you go higher next time? I mean, how, you know, if I'm player X and I do that and I say, well, you gave me 10 and you gave the other guy five, where's the fairness in that? Yeah. So you do want to establish that precedent that says, you know, there's a zero tolerance policy for this. Uh, you know, if you say it, it doesn't matter how sorry you are. If you say it and you do it, we're going to come down hard on you. Right. And to me, five games, what five games says is some tolerance. There's some tolerance for this. I, <laughs> right. The more I, I think about it, the more I actually hate that number, especially when it looks like a step backward when Bill Peters loses his job appropriately for, for comments he said. And mm-hmm. now... In light of all this, in this sort of supposedly newly established world where we're not going to tolerate this stuff anymore, you're getting only a five-game suspension for doing the same thing that Bill Peters did? Right. Uh, I hate it. I, I, I'd like to see 25 games, 30 games. Like, something that's actually going to be meaningful, it's going to deter someone. Five games feels like a little slap on the wrist, and I don't know. I, I feel like it's a step backward. I'm, I'm very disappointed uh, in that ruling, personally. But uh, it is what it is, as as the hockey players like to say. Yeah, they love it. Uh, switching back to the NHL now, uh, as we get to the break, the to me the Rocket Richard Trophy weight race. <laughs> I sound like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> the Rocket Richard <laughs> Trophy weight. Uh, to me, this is the most exciting it's been in a long time. Right. Uh, you've got multiple guys who are going to be challenging to surpass fifty goals. In particular, uh, David Pasternak, of course, Austin Matthews, Alex Ovechkin, right there, neck and neck. Uh, so I'm kind of curious just who you got. Who do you think is going to emerge as the goal-scoring champion when the season is done? Mm. I think it's going to be Ovechkin. Mm-hmm. Um, because Ovechkin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got eight goals in his past three games, back-to-back hat tricks. Um, he just sets up on the power play. Everyone knows what's coming. His, the opponents know what's coming. All 18,000 people in the building know what's coming. Everybody watching on TV knows what's coming, and they're still powerless to stop it, and he scores all the time. I, I, think, I think Ovechkin is at the point now where it's like it's fun, and like the Capitals are in first place overall. They've got, you know, they're, they're, they're cruising along. Um, you know, the, it's just really good karma for Ovechkin right now. And, you know, he's in this chase for, you know, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the goals record chase. Um, I think that, you know, that's going to be a big part of it as well. And I, I just think, I don't know, I just think that if Ovechkin sits there and goes, yeah, I think I, I want to win the Rocket Richard Trophy, he, he's going to go and win mm-hmm. it. Mm. I mean, that's a good argument. Uh, I'm going to go with David Pasternak because I feel that the Bruins need him to score more than Washington needs Ovechkin because the caps are in such a good place right now you know you're not maybe you give ovechkin a night or two off at the the end of the season whereas boston needs to fend off tampa bay if they want that one seed in the division also and maybe this is kind of backwards thinking but ovechkin is rapidly approaching 700 career goals what happens 
after he gets 700 because there's going to be a lot of buildup for that. So, A, there's going to be a lot of pressure getting to 700, and then there's going to be the sort of, you know, uh, the emotional come down of hitting that benchmark. Does that af- impact how many goals he gets this season? I still think, obviously, that Ovechkin is going to have a lot of goals, but... Someone just called their hotel room. <laughs> like, everything is going on and, while and we're we trying to do this. we also had housekeeping knock on the door. Yeah. Despite the fact that we had a new yeah. not disturb sign The perils the of exactly. podcasting in a hotel. <laughs> Anyways, so the housekeeper thinks that it's going to be Ovechkin. Uh, but I think it's going to be David Pasternak. Fair enough. And I think, you know, Pasternak, of course, has the edge just in terms of being the current leader. Uh, I, I still lean Ovechkin. I mean, we can give a little shout-out to Matthews. He's been really hot. 20 goals in, in 26 games since Sheldon Keefe took over. Um, and, I, and I do think Matthews has been an even-strength beast. Since he, since he debuted in the NHL 2016-17, he leads the league in even-strength goals. But uh, Ovechkin's still shooting the puck more, even at even-strength, than Pasternak or Matthews. And if we factor in the opportunity, Alex Ovechkin plays 4.53 per game on the power play, That's which ridiculous. is the highest total for any <laughs> in the last That's six insane. years. Uh, so if you factor that in, even he's even shooting the puck a lot at even strength, but you just get, he's playing almost two minutes more per game on the power play than Matthews, for example. Uh, and there's just, as Ken implied, there's a momentum to Ovi. Once he just yeah. feels it, it's like he's this, this unstoppable freight train that it just feels like he wants to do it and he's going to do it. So, and you factor that in with the fact that he's getting by far the most power play chances in the league. Uh, I'm going to bet on Ovechkin to to win it, which would, which would be a ninth time. He's the only guy wow. to win it eight times, to lead the league eight times, uh, and I think he's going to do it a ninth time. But it's going to be really exciting. I think it's yeah. going to be really close. Well, he's going to miss that game coming out of the All-Star break, right? That's right. So that that's a factor. But, y- you know, you mentioned, Ryan, about what happens after 700 goals. I think it's going to be the opposite. I, I think yeah. I think Ovechkin is the kind of guy, and I remember, I, I think it was after his rookie season, I said, I, I, I said to him, I said, how do you, like, how do you feel when you score? And he said, the first thing he said was, the first thing I think is, I want to do it again. Yeah, and I think once he hits 700, and then he goes, wow. Let's go to eight. I'm, a, I'm 101 behind Gordy Howe now. Yeah. I'm 194 behind Wayne Gretzky. You know, giddy up. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. You know? Fair. Uh, so let's talk a little about the All-Star game. Uh, there are a couple new... <clears throat> events that have been introduced this year. We've got the women's three-on-three game, which I'm really excited about. We're going to get to that in more detail in a little bit. We also have the Shooting Stars event, where players are going to shoot pucks at targets from the crowd. I'm kind of skeptical that it's going to go well, but we'll see. It's uh, not. So let's, let's start with that. How do you guys feel about the current format? And, and uh, technically, that's skills. Uh, but there's a three-on-three tournament, of course. So just in general, though, if you factor in the entire weekend, all-star game and skills competition... Where are you right now in terms of how you feel about the event? I think this is going to be a good combination of events. And the reason is I don't see a dud event. Uh, Now, you know, we haven't seen the Shooting Stars one before, the shooting from the crowd. So, I mean, it could go wrong. But I think at least there's going to be a lot of anticipation around that. And I think the players are going to find it fun because it's something that 
they've never done on this stage before. You know, we've seen some commercials where guys have tried it. We've seen, you know, guys try it uh, for videos for their teams, but that's always been in an empty arena. What's it going to look like when it's a packed arena and everybody is wondering how close they're actually going to get to these targets? So I think from that perspective, that event, it's going to be tough for it to fail because... It's going to be interesting to like nobody knows what's going to happen and what kind of drama is going to be there. I almost I almost look at it like a major golf tournament where it would be like all par threes and you have the whole crowd wondering if these guys are going to hit hole in ones because they are pros. These are guys that can go bar down from center ice. If you just watch them at practice. These like even even goons. I have seen goons go bar down from center ice in the summer. Um, so for the best shooters in the world, even though this is obviously further away and the the degree of difficulty is greater, I'm excited to see what they can do there. Otherwise, you look at the events, and uh, I believe the the women's three on three is technically part of the skills in terms of when it is right. Uh, yeah, it's that night. It's, it's the same night. night. Yes. Yeah. Right. So we'll roll that in. So that'll be interesting because that'll be competitive. And then you've got hardest shot. You've got the accuracy. You've got fastest skater. Like all these events are tried and true. You don't have the puck relay where you could tell the guys just didn't like it. You know, trying to put it through the gates where they had to flip the puck up. It was like you could tell they weren't into it. You know, the passing relays with the mini nets, it does take a lot of skill, but it was TV death and it took way too long. So getting rid of that stuff, I think, was very positive. I think things are going to move at a better clip this year and there will be excitement for every event. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be I'll be fairly short and sweet on this. Really? Uh, I'm here for the access to the players. I think this thing's an entire, <laughs> a complete and utter waste of time. I, I, I hate the All-Star yeah, we, game. I absolutely hate it. I hate everything about it. I hate the skills competition. I hate the game. The, the games are, are hot death to watch. And it, you don't no watch one tries. Them. No one cares. Ken, how would you know? Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, you don't watch it. No, I, I, I'm here for access to players. This is this is a complete waste of time. You're the Marshawn Lynch of hockey writers. I'm no, just no, I'm but, just but, here but to I, write. But I'm saying, but you know, guys, I say it with a certain amount of resentment in my in my in my words, and and the reason why I have such resentment is the NHL keeps telling us that they can't shut down their season and midseason to go to the Olympics. However. Half the teams can take a week off before the All-Star game. Half the teams can take a week off after the All-Star game, and they can shut down for a few days during the All-Star game for this crap (laughs) when they can't do it every four years for the Olympics. So just beat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think, well, I've always said, like, the, the quality of All-Star game is inversely proportional to the amount of contact in the sport, right? So baseball is right. always the best All-Star game because the actual event is the most similar to the real game. Pro Bowl is the worst All-Star game. Mm. It's a joke. No one even watches it. No one even plays in it because the sport is too physical. You can't replicate it, right? Basketball is the second best All-Star game, and hockey is the third best in the, in the big four. I Good think go. they're in a reasonable place. The three-on-three, at least, you get. Some, you know, you're set up for some exciting goals because you get a lot of chances. Uh, and I do think, you know, even if Shooting Stars fails, at least it'll fail spectacularly because it'll fail with someone standing in the crowd. So there'll be 
opportunities for comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still, I am a fan of Save Streak. I've said it for a while that it's going to age well because any event that has a, a sturdy record that can be broken again and again, those are the events that have stood the test of time, like the hardest shot, fastest skater. And in time, eventually, there's going to be a really good number in Save Streak. And if the event still exists in five years, it's going to be, oh my God, someone someone broke it. Someone got 30 saves in a row. And yeah. The record. Uh, also, Shea Weber's back, which is pretty fun for, oh, for a yeah. shot because yeah. he hasn't gotten to do it for, for many years. So I think there'll be some anticipation there. Does he still have it? Can he break the all-time char record? He's playing so well. Last 50 games, I think he has 19 goals. Or sorry, the last 82 games, 19 goals and 50 points. Vintage nice. Shea Weber. Mm. Uh, so I think it, it, it's going to be okay. Um, but I, I do think the women's 3-on-3 event is going to be really exciting. I think it's going to be the best thing about the entire weekend because you've got elite players uh, from who Canada give a, and USA who give a damn who, gonna, who have something who give to prove. a damn yeah. exactly yeah, who cares so I think they're really gonna and I think they're, you know it's you can make a case that Canada USA women's is the best rivalry in hockey right now one of the best rivalries in all sports two absolute juggernauts who are so evenly matched who have traded championships and gold medals over the last two decades uh, so there's a rivalry there I'm curious what you guys think uh, just in terms of picking a winner who do you have winning the three on three battle Canada or USA well, I think USA's had Canada's number for the last mm-hmm. few competitions, so based on that, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the U.S. Yeah, I agree. I think it's gonna be the Americans. Not only do they have that mental edge, but they're also gonna have the whole crowd behind them. Yeah. And I think that's gonna be a big factor. My quick question is: Will we see a lacrosse goal in the women's three on three, or at least an attempt? Don't get me started on lacrosse goals. I do not like lacrosse goals. You don't look anything fun. I like, but see, that's the thing. No, see, that's, <laughs> yes, see, that's I what... I like everything. Yeah, this I know. This contradicts I, my brand. I'm, I'm, my hockey views are very millennial, and I like no, all the fun stuff. I love the storm <laughs> surge. I love all the fun stuff. This is the first time. Maybe it's like a, a It is, it is, and I was thinking over. about that. I was thinking about that the other it's day. The first like, time I haven't been on that side, because I yeah. do not think they're safe. A goal that involves uh. stuffing the puck right beside the goalie's head with your blade. I hate it. Goalie's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get a stick in the eye. You know, if the, the goalie's if the goalie's standing up, he won't it won't be going by his head. It'll be going under his arm. So or it'll be going under his, <laughs> into his neck or something. You know. Mm. Uh, but I, I agree. I think that the the, the American women are going to win this home ice advantage. And also, uh, I mean, both teams have a lot of skill. But I think the U.S. has got a lot of speed. Of course, Kendall Coyne and uh, Lambert as well. Like, I, I think that speed in the three on three is going to play really well. Uh, it's going to be exciting to see. I, mm-hmm. know, I think we're going to get. Yeah, it's only twenty minutes though. That sucks. Yeah. Get, it's only a 20-minute game. Maybe after 20 minutes of it, it'll, then it'll be like, okay, that's enough three-on-three. Three. Yeah, it is three-on-three. It'll, three. it'll yeah. our appetite. Yeah. It'll already be like 7-5. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys, too, do you have a favorite? You know, maybe, Ken, this will, be, this will be tougher, but what's your favorite All-Star memory? <laughs> no, you're going to love mine. Do you have you're one? I have a couple. All right, do uh, it. Mine. You, you start, Ken. Mine, mine actually goes back to the very first All-Star game that I covered, 1990 in Pittsburgh at the old Civic Arena. Um, and it had nothing to do with what happened on the ice. It was a wild weekend. Uh, there, there was, I, was, I, was, I was in my first term at the Hockey News then. I'd, been, I'd only been there for about a year and a half. I was in my late 20s, so I was sort of new at all this stuff. Somehow, myself and Steve Dryden and Eric Duhachek ended up in a, in a room that Wayne Gretzky rented, a hotel room Wayne Get- Gretzky rented and had a party in. <laughs> and, and we ended up in that room partying with all these guys that were playing in the game. And Wayne was there. And, and Janet 
Janet called up to want to asking when he was coming back to the room, and it was just crazy. He was it was it was so much fun. And that and would I, never happen today. No, and I remember no I remember sitting right. there thinking, man, man, like. I'm from Sudbury. <laughs> and here I am partying at the All-Star game with Wayne Gretzky. But that weekend was so cool because the day before the game, um, Bernie Nichols got traded from the Los Angeles Kings to the New York Rangers for, for uh, Thomas Sandstrom and Tony Granato. And he was playing. He, he was in the game. Mm. Right The day before the game, he gets traded from the... Western Conference to the Eastern Conference. <laughs> so, like, everybody's like, well, so who's he going to play for? He ended up playing for the West. But that was, like, a huge blockbuster trade. Um, and then the, the other thing was the morning of the the morning of All-Star that was the very first Canada-U.S. media game uh, Ooh, that, that we nice. played. We won. Canada won. I scored a goal. It was awesome. Boom. Um, but I remember after the game... Uh, we're sitting there, and these guys come in the room, and they start glad-handing us. These guys from Ottawa? Bruce Firestone and Jim Durrell and these guys, and they're giving us, like, you know, trinkets and shit like that. And, like, we're like, what are these clowns doing here? <laughs> like, these guys are never going to get a team? Come on. What do these idiots from Ottawa think? And so, anyway. Then, yeah. Uh, so, that was that was actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that one. All right. I like that. All right. So, my best memory is kind of a combination of on and off the ice. Um, Montreal, which I believe was the first all-star game I ever covered for the Hockey News. And this was the year where... Ovechkin and Malkin had their huge running feud. Like this was sort of the beginnings of the the Pittsburgh Washington rivalry. And you know, Ovechkin kept taking runs at Malkin during the season and it was looking really kind of toxic. And then they were on the same team, obviously, at the All-Star Game. And it's the night of the skills competition. And the place was already electric because all the Habs fans thought they were going to get Vin- Vinny LeCavalier in a trade. And, uh, and they didn't, but uh, they were very excited about it. But then it came to the skills, and Ovechkin was doing a, uh, a breakaway competition. And it was like straight out of pro wrestling where he, he approached Malkin and it was like, oh, what's going on here? And then Malkin helped him put on like the sunglasses and the hat and Malkin squirted water in his mouth. And it's like, oh, they're friends again. And it was just like a huge, great, like uh, theatric moment. And then we found out later, or at least, you know, the, the rumor was Ilya Kovalchuk brokered yeah, broke a broke deal it. at a party right. the night before. Sit down. And it was just like, you never get that good stuff in hockey. Yeah. You never get those fun stories. And so to witness all that in real time from the press box was very exciting. That's cool. I, I had a, a couple. One is just like a memory from being a kid. Just uh, I, I like the days when the game, it just it felt, I don't know whether it was because I was a kid or whether the game really had more weight to it, but I just remember watching a year where Mike Gartner was a last-minute replacement and he comes in and he's in his 30s by this point. He, he scores a half-trick, he wins the car. And I just remember feeling like it was a big deal back then. So I don't know whether that's changed or not, but uh, from a personal perspective of what the most exciting All-Star game was, to me, it, it, it was actually pretty recent. It's 2016. It was the John Scott year. You had Nashville 
which was this is when Nashville was just sort of blowing up its reputation. It was the year before they went to the final, and I feel like people were still discovering it from a hockey perspective as a fun market. Everything in Nashville was amazing. The entire weekend was amazing. It was such a fun place to be. And the whole John Scott narrative, like you couldn't have scripted it better. It was like a wrestling match. And the fact that he scores the winning goal, I think it was the winning goal, but he, he, or at least he, he won the MVP. He had two goals. Couldn't have been scripted yeah. better. It was amazing. Uh, the whole weekend, just everything just kind of felt kind of storybook, including Dylan Larkin won the fastest skater. And then I spoke to Dylan Larkin afterward in all the festivities and, and his uncle Jack I think his name I think his uncle's name is Jack was there and so all the Larkins were together and I remember saying to Dylan Larkin I was like you've won this for our family you're the fastest skater the Larkins are the fastest skaters and we celebrated the victory but point being just that uh, the entire uh, event everything that went everything that went down was just uh, extremely it just it went without a hitch and just especially the John Scott the John Scott element was so much fun uh, so, moving on a bit from All-Star, uh, let's look forward to the second half of the season. Um, and looking at the standings, I want to know, first of all, who is your second half breakout team? The team that's been, you know, maybe middling slope so far, showing some potential, but that you think, you know, could be the Blues, the equivalent of what the Blues did last year. I'm not saying it has to be a Stanley Cup pick, but who do you like to bust out? Hmm. I'll start off with... The Dallas Stars, uh, currently third in the Central, so, I mean, they're already in a playoff spot, but they have won seven of their past ten games. This is a team that obviously had a lot of great dynamic elements heading into the season, and then you have the shocker of Coach Jim Montgomery stepping away to to deal with uh, his alcoholism, and Rick Bonus coming in, and there was a lot of questions about... You know, could Rick Bonus keep the party going uh, in Dallas because they had a good team? And so far, he has done a bang-up job. Uh, the only unfortunate thing for Dallas is that they're going to end up playing Colorado in the first round, uh, or or failing that, St. Louis. But, I mean, they're in the Central Division. There's nothing you can do about that. But I think I think Dallas is in a great place right now and, uh, and will continue to do so. Um, for me, it's the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, six in a row, obviously. They beat, they beat the Winnipeg Jets last night. Uh, won six in a row, nine and two since January 1st. Um, you know, and, uh, and I mean, in, this, in their six-game winning streak, they've given up six goals. They've had three shutouts. Uh, <laughs> Elvis Merzlikens has been unbelievable. Um, I love that, they're, that they're, their goaltending battery is now Elvis Merzlikens and Matthias Kiv. <laughs> Kivlaniks or whatever yeah. that guy's name is. Yeah. Both guys from Riga, Latvia. Like, how, 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 <laughs> they've cornered the market. How, yeah. cra- how crazy is that? And then, and then, of course, uh, you know, once uh, Jonas Corposalo gets healthy, uh, he would have been playing in this in this game, uh, in the All Star game, if he hadn't been if he hadn't been hurt. Uh, once he gets healthy, their goaltending situation looks great. Um, you know, as it turns out, personally, I think what happened to them last summer was the best thing that could have happened to them. Mm. Losing Sergei Bobrovsky. Matt Duchesne has been okay. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been great. Maybe that's generous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ryan Dezingle hasn't done tons. Um, you know, and it's forced them to... Jimmy Panarin, though. He's been... Yeah, yeah, okay. That, yeah, that, that, one, that, one's, that one's a big one. But, but I think it forced them to look from within and to see what they had from within and for guys to step up. 
And I think there have been, you know, obviously guys. I, I think Seth Jones is, is putting together a sneaky Norris caliber season. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I, really like, I really like Columbus's chances coming down here. Okay. Uh, if you guys recall, I had, I had sort of my I – wasn't, I wasn't quite gutsy enough to call it my official Stanley Cup pick, but I called it my hot take Stanley Cup pick. I did yep. put it in writing. It's in our magazine. Uh, bless you, Stephen. He just sneezed. Uh, my, my hot take Stanley Cup was Colorado-Florida, rematch of 96. Colorado obviously holding up its end of the bargain. And I think the Florida Panthers are emerging as a bit of a sleeper. They've won six straight games. Yep. Uh, and if you look, obviously their Achilles heel this season has been goaltending. On the year, they're ranked at 5-on-5, five five, 28th in the NHL in save percentage. But since the start of December, they rank 4th in save percentage. So as a team, obviously Chris Drager has been quite the revelation. He's hurt now. So it's up to Bobrovsky. <laughs> this is a sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> it's up to Sergei Bobrovsky to take the torch from Drager. From Chris Drager. But it, that's not the worst thing to bet on. Like, quote-unquote, if only Sergei Bobrovsky can be average going forward. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, happy bet to be making. Even if Bobrovsky is like a 9.15 save percentage guy for the rest of the season, I think with the rest of what Florida's bringing to the table, especially the depth at forward, I think they can be pretty dangerous. Uh, so they're my team to watch, and obviously they are hot right now. Six straight wins. Eight wins of their past ten. Also, the other team, of course, to watch, and I've, I've made this joke before that Tampa Bay was the second-half sleeper because they yeah. started slowly. Yeah, that's mm. But Tampa is just wrecking people right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to give a shout-out to Anthony Sorelli, uh, our midseason awards, uh, PHWA. Sorelli didn't get into the top three. He was my number one pick. I think he's having a really breakout, a big breakout season just in time for him to need a new contract. Here comes Tampa's salary cap conundrum yet again. <laughs> Uh, and also, if the playoffs started today, I believe someone tweeted today that it would be Lightning Panthers first. It, yeah, it would I be. I really want to see that series. I, I want a Battle of Florida. That would be awesome. Never yeah. Been, right? yeah, and, yeah. And also, like, I want to go cover the Battle of Florida. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, every national writer will be saying to their editor, well, you know what? I really think Tampa, Florida is the uh, marquee series to cover it's in the first really round. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so to flip the coin now. What is a team that you're worried about in the second half? You think could slide out of the playoffs or could just fall short of expectations? I am currently worried about the Carolina Hurricanes because of the major injury to Dougie Hamilton and the fact that they are already, you know, in the they're in the wild card race right now, but it's such a packed race. And they've they've only won five of their past ten games. I just worry that despite the fact they have been playing pretty well so far, that the long-term loss of Hamilton is, is really going to sting them. And there's just there's so many teams in the mix. You know, we've, we've talked about Columbus, but like Philly is right there as well. And... You know, like Toronto's not too far behind, although, you know, the Leafs, they've got problems of their own right now. Um, but I'm a little worried about the Hurricanes. Okay. Yeah, there's two Canadian teams that I would be worried about if I were in that fan base, and one of them is Toronto, the other one's Winnipeg. And and f- much for the same reason. Um, and, and by the way, Kenny, I want you to focus on Toronto for this answer because there's a question we're going to do about Winnipeg. Okay, okay. okay. So, well, I, th- I, think, I think, you know, I mean, it seems like they had that initial sort of jolt of energy and, 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 and they were playing real well when, when Sheldon Keefe came in. 
uh, and they, they, they obviously got off to a good start. They were feeling good about the way they played. They were playing. They believed in the system. They, you know, they were executing it well. Uh, you know, it's been a different story the past little while, and Frederick Anderson has not been very good. Um, and I, I still have real issues and real concerns about the way this team defends and the way they read the room, like their situational play. I haven't seen a team that's been situationally unaware more than this team has been this year. Like, it's like, okay, guys, God, we just played a great period, you know, came out in the third period, scored the goal, ahead goal. Uh, you know, we're up, we're up, you know, three, two with 10 minutes left. Let's open it up. You know, like they, they hmm. just, they never read the room. And, and to me, that's, that's a that's a big part of why they're they haven't been successful and I mean if this team misses the playoffs that is going to be a disaster for this organization mm, yes, a dis- an absolute for Dubas, disaster because because Kyle Dubas' uh, fingerprints are really on the team more this year than any other because of a lot yep. of personnel changes in the offseason and of course the firing of Babcock so right. uh, there will be nowhere to hide for Kyle Dubas if this team misses the playoffs. Uh, I, I'm worried about the Calgary Flames. Um, the record overall since Jeff Ward took over is good. It's pretty similar to what the Leafs record is under, under Sheldon Keefe. Uh, but this team is not scoring. And since the Ward takeover, I think it's been a problem all year for Calgary, which is strange because they yeah. returned a lot of the same players. They were one of the better offensive teams in the league last year. Even since the, the Ward takeover, uh, they're bottom third in the league in offense. And whether it's Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monaghan, Elias Lindholm, Mark Giordano, nobody is scoring this year. Um, so whatever the system implemented under Ward is, that includes, it's not just a puck luck thing, it includes generating chances. It's not sparking this team offensively, and it's putting a lot more pressure on goaltending. And I think overall, as a tandem, David Riddick and, and Cam Talbot have been above average. But given both of their track records, I don't think it's a slam dunk that you're going to get Vezina caliber goaltending going forward. And I think there's pressure on them right now. If they slip, if either guy slips, because Calgary's not scoring, I think there's a slump coming for a team that's already just hanging on the playoff periphery. So I'm a little worried about the Flames. And, and again, talking about GMs, I think that if Calgary misses the playoffs after being the number one seed last year, then I think that's going to put a lot of heat on uh, Bradshaw Living as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take some reader or listener questions, okay? So, Kenny, you saved your Winnipeg Jets thoughts that's good because the first one is going to be about the Jets this is from Kevin Zorbel and Kevin says where's the Winnipeg Jets talk it's right here Kevin yeah they were such a story in the offseason with the line ideal Bufflin situation are they currently a non-story I know it's only four months into the season into the deal sorry but is he living up to the contract so I guess he's referring to Patrick line with line it's, it's interesting because line is kind of kind of pulling a Phil Kessel where it's like he's a goal scorer who suddenly starts yeah playing better as a playmaker. I think Liney's overall been a, a more well-rounded and productive player. But I agree, I'm still slightly disappointed in the goal production. Um, I think the overall game, though, has been more rounded out and consistent. Uh, and he's still so young. He's still, what is he, 22 now? He's still so young. Still 21. Or still 21. Yeah, so there, I still think there are Rocket Bouchard trophies coming for him. Um, so I, I don't think his contract has been a disaster by any no, means. No, not a chance. No. Um, but as for the Jets as a team... I, it's tough, right? Like Connor Hellebuck, and he, you know, he won our PHWA midseason Vezin Trophy, uh, even though his numbers are starting to slip. But he's overcome some pretty poor defensive play. He's had one of the hardest workloads in the league, and he's still been very good, uh, kind of, which I call John Gibsoning. Um, <laughs> and but if it weren't for for Hellebuck, I don't know where the Jets yeah. would be right now. Uh, and it's just that you know that 
defense core, they lost so much. It's hard to recover. Even though Neil Pionk has been quite a revelation when you lose Truba and Bufflin and Myers, uh, it's hard and to bounce Jared. back from that. And yeah. Jarrett, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, so I don't think the Jets are a non-story. I think they're just a team that's kind of floating in the periphery. The question I have is, what happens to Paul Maurice if this team misses the playoffs? Uh, because there's no denying the talent that the Jets have. Even with their losses, they're still one of the most talented teams overall, especially at forward. And I still wonder, you know, even if it's not deserved for Maurice, who's been a pretty beloved coach for a lot of his tenure, do you just need a new voice? And I, mm-hmm. it, when Peter Laviolette was, was fired, I sort of tabled him as a potential replacement, somebody that has a lot of experience, has taken multiple teams to the cup final, could sort of be a plug-and-play coach for a team that is a win-now team right now. So you wonder, like, would that be someone next year if the Jets miss the playoffs, if Paul Maurice is fired, could it be Laviolette? These are sort of a collection of thoughts I have, but Kenny, let's go with you first because I know you had some things to say. Well, I, I think I think it's it's interesting. I think I think the Jets are a story. I think they are relevant, but it's for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out of the playoffs right now. They've lost four in a row, um, and this is a team that is terrible, terrible defensively, and on the penalty kill especially. Yeah, yeah and 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 I think that, you know I think that 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 the fact that. They've had to rely so heavily on Connor Hellebuck. I think he's starting to wear down a little bit. And if that happens and he can't hold down the fort, uh, then this team could be in some very serious trouble. Um, but this team, you know, it just, they just don't defend well. They, they are really, like, it's, it's, um, it's scary to, to watch how bad they are in their own end sometimes. Um, so I, th- I think they're, they're a story for that reason. Um, you know, I read something three weeks ago that they were talking about an extension for Paul Maurice a couple of weeks ago. Um, I can't imagine that's still on the table now, but maybe it is. Maybe they, maybe Kevin Shevel day off is just like, it's, this isn't on the coach. This is on, you know, sort of the, the blue line, the thin blue line we have and, and it's on the players. I don't know, but, but I can't imagine that they'd be, they'd be talking about an extension right now for Paul Maurice. I feel that Paul Maurice gets a very long leash and that's why I, I don't think he will be fired. Um, you look at the Dustin Bufflin situation. Not only are you missing one of your most important players, but you know you also have that huge salary that was up in the air uh, and you know prevented them from from making a, a, another move. So you go into next season, and, and maybe this season is a bit of a lost one for the Jets. Maybe they miss the playoffs, and that would seem pretty bad. But again, given the situation, if you look at this roster, all of a sudden, Bufflin comes off the books this summer. Um, actually, no, he's still got one no. year left. Yeah, no, he's still on. He's yeah, still in there. but at least maybe you get that situation resolved. Mm-hmm. And then you either have Dustin Bufflin or you don't have his $7.6 million cap hit. I think then you sort of have a bit of a reset and say, okay, we know we have a lot of good pieces. We have a coach that we trust that has been with us long term. Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes the wheels just come off. It's happened to good teams before. It's unfortunate because Winnipeg is in their window right now. But the Bufflin thing, I, I think, has really thrown them for a loop. Like I, I just, I just get the sense that you can never, you can never 
rely on the Gen- the Winnipeg Jets to be any form of consistent at all. Like you, you just you just don't know from one game, game to, to game, an- week to week to another year to year. what what team is going to show up. Mm. You know, is it going to be a team that that grinds out a you know a really good you know three two win over a really good team, or is it a team that's going to lose seven one to Tampa Bay like they did last week? I mean, and and it it could happen on back to back nights with these guys. <laughs> um, and and I just I find you know it's when you're not consistent, it's hard to just turn the switch on and start being a consistent team. So, mm-hmm. next question is from the Kurt Locker. The, the Kurt, Kurt what a name! Nice best picture winner in 2009, Ken Kurt Locker. Yeah, thanks, Catherine Bigelow. Shout out. Uh, how big of a difference can a goalie coach make when you see Elvis Merzlikens and Corpusala doing well and Bobrovsky having a rough go? Do you attribute lots of that to a team's goalie coach? Well, uh, I think just on the whole, not necessarily applying directly to Bobrovsky's situation, but I think the answer is is huge. Yeah. I think goalie coaches have massive impacts. If you look at what Mitch Korn as director of goaltending and Piero Greco as the actual goaltending coach uh, with the Islanders have done, it's like whoever, like I think if you drop me in there, I would probably have like an 884 save percentage. Pretty good. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't matter who you plug in. Semyon Varlamov, Thomas Grice has been re- totally revived. Robin Lehner, um, I think you've seen over the years, especially when, you know, there's certain goalie coaches that have kind of developed reputations as miracle workers, whether it was, you know, Sean Burke or Benoit Lair. And uh, you look at the transformation of Devin Dubnik, for example, when he worked with Sean Burke. It was night and day. Mm-hmm. So, and it can be, it can be about positioning. It can be about changing, you know, a goalie's angling and making him play deeper in the net, shallower in the net, or anything like that. But it can also be mental. It can be changing a goalie's preparation, his psychology. There's so many different ways you can help prepare a goaltender. Uh, and I think it's as important as it ever is, or ever has been. And it reminds me of something that I was told recently just about how being a goalie is so much harder these days because of the information that's out there. And you have things like shooting instructors are going to goaltending seminars to find out what's being taught to the goalies, and they're bringing that back as intel to teach the shooters. That's how hard it is to be a goalie these days, so you need every advantage you can get. And I do think, as a result, goalie coaching is very important. Yeah, what we've also seen in uh, the past decade or so is teams now have tandems where... You always have one goalie coach at the NHL level, and then you'll have another goalie coach working with your AHL guys, maybe even checking in on some of your prospects. And, you know, circling back to Columbus, they've had success for years now because they've had a series of, of good goaltending coaches. Ian Clark was there before, and, and now they have a tandem of Man- Manny Legacy and Jim Corsi, the man who invented Corsi. Um, who obviously had a lot of success as a goalie coach over the years. And I I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that Columbus has been able to not only coach up these goalies, but find them in the first place. And, you know, I remember speaking with Manny Legacy a couple of years ago at the Traverse City tournament, the the, the Prospects tournament, about Mattis Kivlinik's. And at the time, he was, you know, Kivlinix was new to the organization, but Legacy was beginning to work with him. He saw all the raw tools that Kivlinix had. And, you know, Columbus, it's not just the guys they have already coming up in the NHL. They also have Daniel Tarasov coming up. Like, they have a pipeline. They have a serious pipeline. And I think that's part of the reason that they knew that they could part with Sergei Bobrovsky is they had so much talent coming up 
and the ability to work with these guys before they get to the NHL and have a consistent message is crucial. And a lot of teams do this, but I think Columbus is a pretty good example of an organization that has all their ducks in a row. Yeah, I think I think what we used to see in the NHL was, um, you know, coaches would be like, well, you know, as long as he stops the puck, I'm, I don't care. Right. right. And, and I think I think they're 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 important because for the most part NHL head coaches and assistant coaches are pretty clueless about goaltending. Like I don't think they know much about it. I don't think yeah. they appreciate the position. I don't think they know much about what makes a good goalie, what doesn't make a good goalie. So they have to delegate that to a goalie coach who who really can can work with a guy. And you know, I mean, I I you talk to most NHL coaches it's like I stay away from the goalies. I don't, you know, <laughs> right. I don't even talk to them. I don't tell them how to play. I don't tell them what to well, do. I, I remember Ken Hitchcock told me he was absolutely terrified of Ed Belfort. Like, <laughs> he was yeah. like, I can't even go near him. Right, exactly. So, so I think, I think for that reason, uh, it's really become important because most coaches just they don't know the craft. They don't, they don't know it. They don't appreciate it. They don't understand it. Um, and but they've got to, they've got to play the guy that's going to help them win games. Um, and and so. You know, the, just the fact that it's so specialized and, and you know, the, these guys, you know, they, these head coaches and assistant coaches, I think they're they're still of the mind that, you know, I don't really know much about this as long as he stops the puck. So you do have to have those guys that are, are really sort of focused on the minutia of the of the craft and, and you know, making these guys better. Good. Uh, we'll do one more question. And this, this guy's name could not sound more like a Habs fan. Like, I feel like this is a UP burner account. Uh, Eric LaRouge. Nice. Eric LaRouge asks, what do you think about the Habs situation? And Habs is in all caps. What do you think about the Habs situation? I think the Habs situation, well, they're not going to make the playoffs. They're not very good. Nope. And I think what's going to happen here is the worst possible thing. I think Don't say it. Don't I, say it. I think they're going to sign Ilya Kovalchuk oh, no. to a two- or three-year deal. I really do. I think they're going to do it. And I think they're going to regret it very shortly after they do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I still see a team that doesn't have a true number one center. And that's a big problem because you need one of those to succeed in the NHL. I, I think they have some good young players that are coming up. I really like Nick Suzuki, but they need to figure that out. I think Max Domi in an ideal world is on the wing. And I, I know they've played him in, in both center and wing, but in an ideal world, he is a top-line winger. Same with Jonathan Drouin. Um, I don't think Jesperi Kotkaniemi is going to be a top-six center. And Ever? Uh, maybe not. Huh. Yeah, maybe not. Um, Suzuki, yes. Ryan Paling, maybe a second-line center. Uh, but he's still working on it. I, uh, I, I just think they're... They've made mistakes at the top of the draft. And it's not just Kotkaniemi. Yeah. It was Galchenyuk as well. Um, but this is a team that still has a lot of digging out to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to spin this more positively. I, I'm really, I think if you're a Habs fan, you should be happy with where the team is right now. Ten points out of a playoff spot is fantastic news. You don't want to be two points out. You don't want Mark Bergevin getting any bad ideas. Uh, this is a team that it, the Atlantic Division is so top-heavy. You don't want to be good right now. You, you're, I think the Habs are developing one of the better prospect pools in the league. 
whether it's Romanov and Cole Caulfield and Caden Primo, it's a really nice group of kids. I, I personally, I, I kind of ride for Nick Suzuki. I think he's going to be a number one center. Not necessarily like a 100-point guy, but I think he's going to be a really good two-way yeah, be a seventy-point guy when he yeah. I think he's shown a lot as a rookie. Uh, so I think the Habs are building one of the better prospect pools in the league. They're in position to easily miss the playoffs, which is good because they're going to get a top ten pick possibly in the draft, at least in contention for a top ten pick. Uh, and they have a few expiring assets <laughs> if they're smart. Cash in Ilya Kovalchuk, but even looking ahead to next year, uh, there are a few guys that would be in great demand. Uh, Thomas Tatar, one year left on his deal. Is that mm. someone that you consider shopping this year because if you yeah. Advertise that extra year, two playoff runs worth. Thomas Tatar's 29. By the time Montreal's going to be good again, he's going to be in his 30s. Do you want to start him on a new contract? It's similar to what happened with Pacioretty and what did Montreal do with that trade? They turned it into Nick into Suzuki. Nick Suzuki, yeah. right? Yeah. I think you could replicate that trade with Thomas Tatar right now and he's playing maybe the best hockey of his career overall. Uh, so there's an opportunity there. That would make Tatar one of the better options available at the deadline. It's a weak group of players that are supposedly going to be on the block this year. So if you have Tatar, a guy with an extra year, that's a really nice chip to have on the table. Even, you know, you never know, a guy like Brendan Gallagher. I think Gallagher is going to be part of Montreal's long-term plans, but I'm just saying he has one year left on his deal as well. You never know. And he's going to want to be paid. He's going to want to be paid after what if this it, one. And that's, that's he's underpaid, really and he's going to want to be paid. The playoffs, mm. right? He's... He's got a gritty. He, he's a, he's an agitator. He he's no one shoots the puck more. Literally, no yeah. one shoots the puck more than Brendan Gallagher in the entire league on a per minute basis over the last several years. Him, Victor Arvidsson, uh, Ovi, like they're right. Yeah, at the I top. can't I can't be on board with um, this, Matt. I can't be on board. I'm not with saying Gallagher. you trade him. Yeah, I'm just uh, saying that that's another example. You have right, a few guys right. that are expiring soon. You have flexibility. You have a good group of prospects. You're going to miss the playoffs easily. You have several players that are going to be attractive that could receive offers. Uh, or for, for whom you could receive offers. And even from a cap situation, Montreal, you know, you do have, you know, Shea Weber and Carey Price you're kind of stuck with uh, regardless, just, you know, long-term. But with the overall breakdown of Montreal's current cap, they can afford them both. It's not like they're maxed out next year. Uh, so I think Montreal's in an okay spot. If, if they are realistic about their cap situation and they understand that they don't need to be good for a few years and it's okay to cash out a few of their chips, uh, namely Tatar. I like where the Habs are right now, but we'll see. Can they? Can they though? Can they? Can they realize? Come to that realization? That's a good question. Nope. You know, know, they they should be able to. They should be able to. I mean, if there's any fan base in the league that could afford to be tolerant and and patient, it should be this one. Ha! Huh. No, it should though. Really, <laughs> should or will? Well, I, I know what you're okay, saying. Okay, so it's going to be the it's it'd be the difference between. You know, 21,000 people showing up at the Bell Center and 18,000 for a while. Right. You know? Um, but, you know, I mean, Montreal does not have a tolerance for its team, its hockey team struggling the way, you know, say Toronto has. I mean, Toronto's yeah. lived through this for decades and decades and decades. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wonder if that if they do have that, that level of tolerance. They should, but I don't. I'm not sure if they do. And we'll see if, if they're put in that position. Well, it depends on what Mark Bergevin is going to do. Well, that concludes the podcast for this week, everybody. We'll be back soon. We'll be giving you coverage throughout the All-Star Weekend. And next week, we're going to have a special podcast, an all-mailbag edition coming out of the break. Thank you for listening. And now it's time to sink back into our mattresses in this lovely hotel room.